0: Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Russ. Thank you guys for leading us. Good morning, Mars Hill. As Russ read, we're in Exodus chapter 20. We're in and on to the second commandment. And thankfully and helpfully, Russ reminded us these are God's words to us. And if you remember, the Ten Commandments, the, the original language says ten words. And these are ten words about God's covenant love. And so they're rich with marital language, with spousal love. They're rich with his affection for his people. And we see that in verse 2 as well in in the fact that he rescued his people and he rescued them for relationship. Last week we saw that God alone is God, that there is no other God, that he alone must be worshipped, that we can have no other gods. And this week what we're going to see is that he has a specific way in which we must worship him, that we cannot worship him by any other means than by the image by which he reveals himself and how he reveals himself to us. Last week we saw that he alone is God. This week we see that he demands exclusive worship. We're going to see the natural flow of the text this morning. There's really four things here. The command is obvious. It's in verse 4. And then we're going to see the motive, the command we need to understand. What does it reveal about God? What does it reveal about us? But then we need to see the heart again, the heartbeat behind, the motive behind the command, and that's in verse 5b. And then this is the first command, the first word that has consequences. It has a warning in in 5c down to verse 6, a positive consequence and a negative consequence. And then we need to see the remedy. How do we worship God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds and worship Him rightly? And He's provided us a remedy and a way for that. So let's understand the command first. And this is in verses 4 and 5, the first part of 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth above. The earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. This is an emphatic, comprehensive command. Emphatic, it starts just like the other commands low, it means absolutely no other gods, no idols, none. It's emphatic, but it's also comprehensive. And it's profound how comprehensive it is. Those of you who are lawyers in the room or legal analysts, you're going to love the language of this text because it covers all of its bases. There is no loophole. There is no gap. He starts with carved image. The Hebrew word behind that is the Hebrew word petzel, and it means idol or a hewn or carved image, something we craft, something we, we, we make, we, we fashion, we do typically in this context out of wood or metal or stone. It's something that we craft. It's a crafted idol, maybe out of wood or stone, which immediately tells us that an idol can be material. And that's often what we think about. When, when, when you ask the question, what comes to mind when you think about an idol, you typically think of, of a block of wood, something fashioned that people bow before. I, I had the chance to go to one of the largest Hindu temples east of the Mississippi, just south of Chicago one time, and you go into this Hindu temple and there's niches. It's a room this size and there's niches all around the room and in each one is a carved image of a different God and people laying prostrate before those idols. That's often what we think about with idols, but the text goes further than that. It's not simply a crafted, carved object. It's also It also can be immaterial. We see that in the next phrase. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. The Hebrew word there means real, physical, or imagined, immaterial. Material or immaterial. An idol can be physical or it can be emotional. It can be material or immaterial. It can be something that we can see with our own eyes. It can also be something that's in our head, psychological, and in our hearts. And this is getting closer and closer into us and into our hearts. This is starting to step on our toes now. So it can be a carved image or it says any likeness. And this is also goes further. It shows us that it's possible to make an idol out of anything, and here comes the comprehensive nature of this, Out, don't make a, a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. That's comprehensive. That means anything out of creation at all. Anything that is not God is not deserving or worthy of our worship. Anything, physical or immaterial, material or immaterial, emotional, psychological, heart, head, whatever it may be, it's possible to make an idol out of anything. And the text is telling us that there can be nothing that can receive our worship, our love, our devotion, our commitment, our spousal love, other than God himself, so an idol is anything material or immaterial, physical or emotional, that's not God that we give our hearts to, that we give our emotions to, that we give, as we'll see in the text, our worship to. I appreciate the British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones and his definition. He says this, Any, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time, attention, energy, and money. An idol can be anything. This command is not just limited to those people in those days. This command is even for us today. That it comes right here, front and center, to our own eyes, to our own hearts, to our own minds. This isn't just... A command about making, though. This is a command about worshiping. And this is important. And that's what we see in the next part of the text. In verse 5a, it says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So make no hewn image, crafted, physical, material image, out of anything immaterial, out of anything in creation, and don't bow down and serve it. Those are terms of worship. To bow down is a physical act of prostrating yourself, of, of serving. It, it, we saw that early in Exodus. It means to worship. It means to honor, revere, to prioritize. Let nothing be priority to you and your heart and your life other than God and God alone. Let nothing capture your attention, your affections, your heart, your love, your time, your devotion other than God and God alone. And what we see here, because of these terms of bow down and serve them, this is not just a command about making something. This is not a command against making art. Thankfully, otherwise Bobby's in trouble this morning. This is a command about worshiping, about bowing down. Later in, in Exodus, they're going to be told to craft, to create, to make a tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, to craft, create cherubim, and to craft and create An ark, and at no point is that forbidden. They're told to do that. But at no point do they worship the tabernacle, or can they worship the tabernacle, or the cherubim, or the ark. On the ark is an empty seat. The mercy seat. And there is no image. Because the mercy seat is supposed to create a longing for the one who will soon sit on that seat for the one that is the true image of God, Jesus Christ. And so what we see here immediately is here Yahweh is telling them, make no idol, real or imagined, of any sort, of anything, at any time. Lawyers, I told you you would love this. It covers all the bases. And give no idol. This is the heartbeat of of this command, not simply about making, but and give no idol your heart, love, loyalty, or allegiance. At any point, at any time, anywhere. We're all on the hook. We're all in the crosshairs of this command. Why? Why is this command given? What's the significance of this? Why is this given to Israel? What we see is once again, just like last week, the first command, this command is unique among all of the nations of the ancient Near East. This is totally and radically unique. Why? Because in the ancient Near East, every nation, every country attempted to craft idols in order to identify their gods. This was a chance or a way for them to reduce their god down to a physical representation. And then what did they do? They, they bowed before, they worshipped, they served. They thought that that would retain the god in that one place and that they could access that god through the idol. So this is a unique command in the ancient Near East at this time. And it tells us so much about who God is, and it also tells us about ourselves. This command here is reminding Israel, you have been rescued. You've been rescued out of the nations, and you can't continue to live like the nations. You are different. You are distinct. Your God is different. Your God is distinct, and you cannot worship him the way that the other nations worship him. This, again, tells us so much about God. Several things this tells us. First and foremost, this tells us that God is infinitely transcendent. And we cannot do, they cannot do what the other nations do in attempt to reduce Him. He's infinitely other, infinitely holy, and He cannot be reduced to a block of wood, or to a metal image, or to a stone statue. He cannot and he will not be reduced. Anything, this also tells us, anything beyond our limited artistry and imagination, any attempt to craft him is going to insult and dishonor him. It's beneath him. He's so transcendent and other, he can't be reduced to the ordinary created realm. He can't be reduced to time and space. He is the transcendent, extraordinary God of creation and he stands outside of time and outside of space. He cannot be reduced. This says something about how great He is and how infinitely small the little trinkets the other nations worship. It also tells us, secondly, that God is preexistent and self-defined and they cannot define Him in their own terms. And this is a problem for us. Not just for Israel, not just for the other nations. This is a problem for us. We all want to try to craft God into our own image. We all want to make Him into the deity that we think He should be. We all want to reduce Him and limit Him and define Him in our own terms. We want a God of our own making. We don't don't like His calendar and His timeline. We think He should bend to ours, do we not? We don't like His agenda. We don't like His process. We don't like His... Anything, His rule, His reign, we want Him to bend to us. But the Bible makes it clear, He is preexistent and He is self-defined. He defines Himself and He defines us. We do not define Him. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, He says, Let us make man in our image and likeness. God is the only one who can make images to represent Him. And if we reverse that order, he says, let us make man in our image. He defines us. If we reverse that order and try to define him, then who's God? You and I. We are playing God in that moment when we try to tell him how he ought to operate, when we try to define him on our terms, when we try to limit him. To craft an image of God is an attempt ultimately to control the uncontrollable. It's an attempt to reduce Him down, to try to define Him in our terms according to our agenda and our desires is to attempt to tame the untameable, to control the uncontrollable. That's what the other nations were doing. In reducing their gods, they made their gods subject to them. And God will not be subject to you and I. He will not bow before us. He is the infinite, transcendent, holy God. And we are finite and small. He defines us. We don't define him. A third thing this tells us about God and it tells us uh, something significant is that he is holy. We've already sort of emphasized that. But we have to understand that any attempt to define him will be tainted by our own sin. This is something we don't often think about, and Bobby is a great illustration of this this morning. Behind the painting is always a painter, and that seems obvious, right? But behind the painter is a heart bent towards sin. Behind any God we craft, any idol we make is an idol maker, and behind every idol maker is a heart bent towards self, self self-glory robbing God's glory, a heart bent towards sin, a heart bent towards self-centeredness. And there's no chance that that we will ever escape that. Behind every creation that we make is man, and behind man is a sinful and deceived heart. I was listening to a podcast recently that illustrates this, shockingly, disturbingly, and it was an interview with an author of a book about artificial intelligence, and the interviewer was asking the, 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 the author, you know, to describe this. What's it like? What, what's artificial intelligence all about? What's it going to be like in a few years? The whole point of your book. And he says, well, imagine giving your child a teddy bear with artificial intelligence. Eventually the the the, the teddy bear sits there and, and, and watches cartoons with the child, and, and over time the it learns the child's preferences such that the, the, the teddy bear begins to say, I don't like this cartoon. Would you like to change the channel? And the child says, yes. And then the author, the interviewer says, wait a second, that's creepy. That's scary. And the author of the book said, yeah, but it's, it's only a problem if you have bad actors who put some kind of bad bias in the teddy bear. The problem is There is no person immune from sin and self-centeredness. There is no person immune from bias. Every teddy bear will be filled with some kind of sinful bent. And that's what we're learning here is anything you craft behind it is you. Behind it is your own sinful heart. A fourth thing that this tells us about God is that he alone is real and he alone rescues. And this is a chief issue. This is a major issue here, and this is one of the the chief reasons for for making no idol. The other nations saw their idols as their saviors. The other nations saw their idols as their everything. The the other nations bowed down and worshipped their idols and thought their idols were the ones that could come to their rescue. Let's remember back. We just saw ten idols crushed and destroyed in Egypt. Did they come to the rescue? No, they're empty nothings. And this is a reminder that here, whatever idol you prop up and worship, it's empty and nothing. It cannot rescue. God alone is the one who rescues. God alone is the one who comes to our aid. God alone is the one who wraps his arms around. God alone is the one who knows your name and knows your fears and knows your heart. This is such a profound and important warning because this plays out throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. There are constant reminders that idols are nothing. They're empty nothing. Psalm 115, 5 to 7, the, the psalmist says idols are deaf, mute, blind, powerless, empty, and lifeless. Do you think he's trying to make a point? They're nothing. They cannot rescue. They cannot comfort. They cannot soothe you. They're pacifiers that will do nothing for you. God alone will rescue. Jeremiah 10:4 and 5 gives even more vivid language. It says an idol is lifeless and powerless. They have no will or power to do good or to do evil. And then the descriptive language. They're like scarecrows in a cucumber patch. <laughs> Love that language. Nothing. What does a scarecrow have? What do we have to do for scarecrows? We have to pick up the scarecrow. We move the scarecrow. We place the scarecrow. We are giving the scarecrow power. It has no power, it can do nothing for you. And then, in one of the most extensive texts on idolatry and on idol making and idol crafting, Isaiah 44, 9 to 20, says that an idol is worthless. Who makes an idol that profits nothing? Isaiah says. They're deceptive. We can't see that we make them out of created things made by the infinite creator. The idol maker takes a block of wood. But before that, he, he plants a seed, he he watches the tree grow. The water comes down, it waters the tree. He takes the tree, he takes an axe to the tree and cuts it down, and then cuts the wood in half, he has, he's deluded, he has no idea that the thing that he's worshiping was given, created by God, the water given by God, the tree grown by God, the seed made by God. He is worshiping the created over the creator. And then what does he do? He takes the, the block of wood and he cuts it in half. And he has a deluded mind. He does not understand that what he's burning for food, he's also crafting to worship. He is clueless. An idol is an empty nothing, and they give us nothing in return. All they do is drain us of power and energy. That Isaiah 44 talks about the idol crafter, the idol maker, wearing himself out worn out from crafting and making and hewing and hacking and axe with an axe, this idol, and it just drains him of power, but he keeps pouring more and more energy into it. It's the law of diminishing returns. And you know this from personal experience. The idols that we worship, though we prop them up, though we think they'll please us, what do they do? They leave us empty and longing for more every single time. Every single time so the warning against idol making is a warning against hoping in something that's empty and lifeless so this tells us a lot about who god is but it also reveals something about us it reveals that our hearts are prone to wander it reveals to us by the by the sheer implication of having this command it reveals to us that our hearts are bent towards idol making that that this is our natural inclination as a result of the fall that we now constantly are making idols. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. In Romans, 8, 8, in Romans 1, 18 to 25, Paul says that, that we suppress the truth about God. Though it's evident through creation, though it's evident everywhere we go, we suppress the truth about God. And then in verse 22, claiming to be wise, thinking that we know what's best for us, it says we exchange the truth for a lie. That we exchange the truth about God for a lie. That we neither gave Him gratitude or thanks, but thinking ourselves wise, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Think about what that means. It means... What the scriptures tell us over and over again, that our hearts are made for worship, that we never fully deny the glory of God. What we do is replace the glory of God with some little trinket, thinking it will satisfy us. And the scriptures tell us over and over again, we were created to worship. We were created to worship God. And, and as a result of the fall, that relationship is fractured fragmented, but we did not lose that created design to worship. So now when we go to the Grand Canyon instead of saying, "God, oh my goodness, I cannot believe you made this," we we say maybe at best, "Wow." Or at worst, "Look how awesome I am." <laughs> and we think we are so great and we're not humbled by such beauty and wonder. What this tells us here is that we are idol makers. This is where we have to insert Calvin's common quote for this. John Calvin says our hearts are perpetual idol-making factories as a result of the fall. Perpetual idol-making factories. Imagine a conveyor belt and out comes idol after idol after idol. That's our heart as a result of the fall. The New Testament goes on and says that our hearts have broken and disordered desires. James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That word desire means to have an inordinate desire for something that replaces and displaces God. It's the same concept as what Paul describes. So what we're learning here is that we are on the hook. This isn't some distant command for some distant people. This is also our heart. We have a tendency to make idols. We have a tendency to take our eyes off the Creator and make and worship the created. And what Isaiah 44 says Isaiah says at the end of that, the craft, the idol maker, the, the maker and crafter of idols feeds on a deluded heart and he has no wherewithal to say, to think, to understand, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? We worship the thing and we don't even realize it puts blinders on us. We can't see anything else but the idol and it blinds us from seeing the reality and the truth. This is simply a block of wood. This will not comfort me. This will not rescue me. This is not holy. This is not transcendent. This is not God. And that leads us to the motive that leads us to the heartbeat of this text for why this command is given. Because God knows as a result of the fall we are deluded and deceived and broken. And we are bent towards making idols that will never satisfy. And he knows something even more. He knows he alone will. And that's what leads us to verse 5b. You shall not make other idols for yourself, carved images or likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down before them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We get several things here. First, we get that divine, holy name that's intimate and near. We get the I am, I am your God. And then he says something profound here, something that's sometimes misunderstood and hard to understand. I am a jealous God. If you flip over to Exodus 34, 14, it says that his name is jealous. His name is jealous. To say that his name is jealous means this is something that's true of his nature and his character. That we are getting a glimpse into his very heart in this moment. That he's revealing something about who he is. And then we hear he's jealous? Wait a second, this, this doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense because we misconstrue his jealousy for ours. And we have to be absolutely clear, his jealousy is absolutely nothing like your jealousy or mine. He, everything he is, he is good and righteous. In every characteristic we learn about him, he is good and righteous in that characteristic. Everything we know about our characteristics, it's tainted with sin. So what's, what's he saying here? When he says that he's jealous, it's not a jealousy like us. He's jealous for us, not jealous of us. And that is a radical distinction. Think about what that's saying. He's jealous for us, not jealous of us. Nor is he jealous of our idols and the worship they receive. He's jealous for us. What on earth does this mean? It means that he is one with a fierce commitment for the good of our relationship. To say that he's jealous in this context means that he has a fierce commitment for the good of another. The the other... Our form of jealousy is childish envy. We want what we can't have. What he's saying here is something radically different. He's saying he is fiercely and exclusively committed to this relationship. And he will kick down any door and step on any neck to rescue us. He loves us. And he wants us. And he knows what is best for us. And that little block of wood trinket that we bow before or that little approval that you want from someone or something is nothing. But he is everything. This is a jealousy for our good. This is a, the, the closest equivalent that we might be able to understand is zealous. He is zealous for us and for our good and for this relationship. He, he, it, this word, this is a, a, another reason that we talk about these ten words in marital language. This word is primarily used in the Old Testament to refer to a marital jealousy. The jealousy of a husband for his wife, not simply for for her and, and what she has or or that this selfish envy of someone else who might get her attention, he's heartbroken that she would be so deceived as to go to another and he will go through any wall to rescue her. That's what we're learning here. Maybe another way of understanding this, for those of you that are parents in this room, heaven forbid if your child is ever abducted, what would you do? With investigators in the room saying, ma'am, sir, I know this is traumatic, but if you'll just give us some time, let us do our job. No. You're going to go Chuck Norris on somebody. You're going to go Liam Neeson, I have a special set of skills on somebody. You're going to take things into your own hands and you're going to kick down any door. And you're going to do what it takes to get your child back because you are jealous for them. You are zealous for their good. You desire for them to not be abducted and under the rule and reign of someone else. You desire for them to be at home, at peace, safe in your arms. That's what he's describing here when he says that he is jealous for this relationship. He has an infinite love for us and an absolute intolerance for rivals and he wants us to experience all of him not the knockoff trinkets that we worship. You guys ever ordered anything from Oriental Trading Company? Oriental Trading Company they just they're just really good at selling knockoff trinkets of everything. And they sell you bags and bags of it. You can get like a thousand little spinner tops or a little whatever for like $2. And that's what we worship. That's what we're clinging to. And God says, I want you to have all of me. I want you to have what you were created to have. I want you you to know what you were created to know. I want you to worship the one that you were created to worship. I know what's best for you. I know who is best for you. It's me. Stop settling for the trinkets. I'm jealous, I'm zealous and I will fight for this relationship. Once again, we are getting an unbelievable glimpse into the very heart of our God. The very heart of our God who's issuing this command. It's an emphatic command not to cling to empty, lifeless, trinket, hopeless idols that cannot rescue. It's an emphatic command to come home. Cling to me, the one who loves you, who knows you, who rescues you, who cares for you. The one who knows everything about you. The one who will fight for you. God is announcing here that he takes this relationship seriously. That he's not indifferent to this relationship. Let's reverse this. If God were indifferent to this relationship, you know, you could do whatever you want. Is that love? That's not love. That's not commitment. That's not zealous joy. That's not fighting for. That's indifference. And what he is announcing here is he is not indifferent to you and I. He desires for us to experience all of him, and he expects for us to respond in kind. And that leads us to this first command with a consequence, with a warning, in fact, for both disobedience and obedience. There's a consequence for disobedience and a consequence for obedience in this. And it's great news. In verse 5c and in in verse 6, beginning in verse 5c, the latter half of 5, it says that that we can make no other idols, that we can have no other likeness of anything in heaven and earth. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. This tells us two things. First, idolatry has a legacy, that our disregard for God is passed down, it has a legacy. He's opening Himself to Israel and they must open themselves in kind. This is an intimate relationship that they're entering into. And if they don't have the same zealous, exclusive commitment to Him, it will not just affect them, it will affect their children. Think about what He's saying here. If they are only half-hearted in their commitment to Him, they can expect their children will not be far behind. That their covenant faithfulness matter not just for them but also for their children this is a warning this is an eye opening warning that what we worship is passed down if you worship safety and security such that you squeeze your children to death they will either adopt your idol of safety and security or they will react to it and they'll go in the opposite direction If you worship pleasure and pornography to such a degree, your children will either inherit that worship of pleasure or they will react against it. I worked with college students for 20 plus years and I've seen it time and again in girls longing for the love and affection of their father but their fathers were distracted day in and day out by the pursuit of pleasure. Our worship has a legacy. If you want a case study for this, study the book of Jud- Judges. It, it, it's a case study over and over again of generation after generation adopting the idols of the parents, adopting the idols of those who went before them. And over and over again it says, and, and they did what was right in their own eyes. Why? Because their parents did what was right in their own eyes. This is a stark warning, but there's a second thing it tells us here in this warning, the next generation will not get a pass. Just because they inherit their idols from their fathers, their parents, just because they repeat the same sinful activity does not mean they get a pass. And this is sometimes why this is often understood. Some some look at this and say, well, isn't that kind of unfair that God would punish the innocent, the innocent generations? They're not innocent. The text tells us this. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who... Hate me. Love and hate in this context is just like Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Those who choose me, those who regard me versus those who do not, those who disregard me. The next generation will disregard what we disregard. And they will value what we value. And here we're learning in this, this other part of what we're learning here is the next generation will not get a pass. Deuteronomy 24:16 makes it clear that the fathers will not be punished for the sins of the children and the sins of the children or the children will not be punished for the sins of the father. What we're learning here is that each person will be responsible for their decisions. But why does the next generation make the decisions that they're making? They're making them, they're worshiping the idols, they're bowing before them, they're going after what is right in their own eyes because their parents did it. Because their parents did not centralize, prioritize God and God alone. This is a stark warning. You know what's really interesting here? Is this ought to then rouse our jealousy for their good. It ought to rouse us. If that's the case, I don't want them to be enslaved to what I've been enslaved to. I don't want them to... Prioritize the things that I've prioritized and have not that brought nothing, no pleasure, no life, no good. I want them to know the. I want them to know the God of the universe. It ought to rouse our jealousy for them, our zeal for fighting for them and protecting them and leading them into the worship of the one true God, such that they're not they're fully satisfied with Him and nothing else. So there's a warning here for disobedience. There's an amazing promise, amazing promise, profound promise for obedience. It's in verse 6. While we see a consequence and a warning, God's ultimate desire is revealed in verse 6. His very heartbeat is once again revealed in verse 6. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. If they will cling to this covenant and take no other God, no other idol, if they will regard God, prioritize Him, bow before Him, obey Him, submit to Him, there is a consequence for that, and it's a glorious consequence. They will get His warm embrace and intimate rescuing love, which they've already received, they'll continue to receive it, and it will trickle down and overflow into not the third and fourth generation, what the text says, the, the thousandth generation. The text reads, in, in most translations, it will, he will show steadfast love to thousands as though it's thousands of people. The, the language literally means thousands of generations. There is an extreme contrast being made here. That he will... That the next, the third and fourth generation will receive the, the, the punishment for their continued disobedience. But His steadfast love for those who regard Him and prioritize Him and bow before Him will extend not to the third or fourth, but to the thousandth generation. I can't say that word. They will experience His embrace in the next generation. The next generation down to the thousandth generation will receive His embrace as well. What we're hearing here is His true heart, His ultimate desire, the depth and the length of His grace and His love. How do we know that this this is just such a profound promise that it's extraordinary That that his commitment, how do we know that this is his true heart, what he ultimately desires? By the word that he used here in verse 6. It's a phrase in our English translation, but it's one word in the Hebrew. Russ said it earlier when he was praying. It's hesed, and the phrase is steadfast love. Steadfast love, the Hebrew word is hesed, and what it means is he will show his staggering, overabundant, never-ending, covenant-loyal love to thousands upon thousands of generations. This is the love that He desires for us to understand, to comprehend, to be melted by and moved by, to, be, to, to, to experience. This is the love that He desires to work in us and through us to the next generation, the next generation forever. This is what we were created to know, to worship, to walk in, to experience. It's his staggering, overabundant, never-ending covenant love. He reverses this promise in in Exodus 34, verses 6-7. to He announces again, The Lord, the Lord, I am, I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in abounding love. Unending in unending love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. This is unbelievable. This is his true heart. This is what he desires for Israel to experience. For the next generation and the next generation. For thousands of generations to experience. This is, this is what he desires for you and for me. This is a promise for you and I in this moment. This, this is including, wrapping up you and I in his love and commitment and loyal love. Israel says they want this. Israel says, sign me up. We'll do it. We won't bow down before another god. We will not. Never going to happen. And just a few chapters later, Exodus chapter 32, Aaron, the people, Say, we want a God we can see. We want a God we can worship. Moses has been gone far too long. And Aaron says to them, the high priest of the time, bring your gold. And he crafts the gold. He later recounts it. I, I threw it in the fire and it came out a cow. I don't know what happened. But he crafts it. And they prop it up and they begin to worship this golden calf. It's it's literally, though it's chapters later, it feels like just seconds in the whole timeline of the Bible. They say they want God and God alone and that they'll worship him and him alone and no other and bow down before no idol. And yet just a few seconds later, they do it. And once again, we're staring in a mirror. We're staring at ourselves. We see that they represent us, that they are just like us. We see our own hearts. Our own hearts are fickle, that we want to, but we don't. That we long to worship Him, but oh, that little thing looks so good. Oh, I can see it. I can feel it. I can't necessarily see and feel. I, I, I want, and that's what we do. And the struggle ensues, and we cling to our idols. And we're constantly tempted and lured into idol worship. Thanks be to God that he sent us one who zealously loves God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind. He sent us Jesus. And that leads us to the remedy. What is our only hope? How is it that we can experience His His said, loyal, steadfast, unending love? Is it by our willpower? Is it by our strength? No, our strength leads us to worship golden cows. What we see in the text, in the overall story of Exodus, is though we don't bow before golden cows, we bow before gold. We bow before boats. We bow before 401Ks. We bow before approval. We bow before safety and security. We bow before comfort. We bow before power and control. What's our only hope? It's one who does not bow before those things. It's one who does not worship those things, but worships God and God alone. It's Jesus He is the only undiluted, undiminished image bearer of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is God. And he alone worships God, he alone gives him his zealous. Undiluted worship. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What's the only hope? What's our only hope? It's to worship God as He has revealed Himself in Jesus, the image of God. Who we, when we cling to and hope in, are then being renewed in the image of. Romans 8.28. Jesus is the only one with rightly ordered desires that are perfectly set on God and God alone. Jesus is the only one who loves God with a fierce and zealous loyalty. He is the only one who loves God to this degree, even to the point of death. Is he your hope and righteousness? Is his zeal your zeal? In other words, have you confessed, I don't have that kind of zeal, but Jesus, you do and you're my only hope. I don't love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with every single moment of every single day, undiluted. No, I don't. Not make idols out of anything under creation, in creation, under God. I, I do it every single day. I turn my heart towards other things every single day. I see God and then I chase after squirrels, whatever it may be. I chase everything. I don't. But Jesus, you do and I hope in you. If, you don't, if, 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 if you're not my hope, if you're not my righteousness, if it's not by your zeal, then I am doomed. You're my hope and you're my righteousness. If so, the Bible tells us that we are then in Christ. And do you know what we receive? Among infinitely other, in infinite other treasures, we receive his zeal. Our hearts of stone are replaced with hearts ablaze with the fire, with the love of God. It doesn't always feel like that. But it's there. It's true. What we receive if we are in Christ is His unsurpassed power at crushing and dashing idols. That power is at our disposal. It is ours now. What we receive is His gentle grace at uprooting the idols of our heart. This is what we receive in Christ, His power and His gentle grace. So let's end with some practical application here. How? If we are a follower of Christ, can we uproot and displace the idols of our heart? The little trinkets that we worship, the approval, the safety, the security, the gold, the stuff. How can we uproot and displace them? Well, obvious answer, we have to begin what we've already said with Jesus. We have to look to the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We have to look to the one who initiated our faith, who set our hearts ablaze. After the love of God. And we have to look to the one who is the perfecter. That word perfecter means he brings to completion what he begins. Meaning right now he is working in you through the power of the word. That every time you come to the word he is chiseling away at the idols of your heart. Awakening you to the truth that God is infinitely holy and and worthy of all your worship. And your little trinket is worthless. And this is the power that changed people groups and people, people groups and nations in the scriptures. Paul commends over and over again, thank God that you threw down your idols and clung to Jesus, clung to God, who is worthy of our infinite love. We look to the author and perfecter of our faith. We cannot remove our idolatrous heart by willpower, nor can we grow in displacing our idols by our own strength alone. We have to look to Him and His strength. It begins with Jesus. It seems cliche. It seems Sunday school. But it is the answer. When Paul tells Timothy to be strong, he doesn't just say, Timothy, come on. He doesn't just say, Timothy, be strong. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, To be strong in the grace that is in Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Jesus. Be strong in the gospel. Be strong in what Jesus did for you. Look to the cross. Look to his power. Look to his love. Look to his lavish, extravagant grace. Be strong in the grace that is in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says it in, in Hebrews chapter 13. Be strong in grace. In Ephesians chapter 6, when he's telling the church at Ephesus to fight sin, he doesn't say, come on. He doesn't say, be strong. He says, be strong in the strength of the Lord. In other words, fight sin, but fight it with the power of Jesus. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is yours, available to you to smash idols in your heart. Use that power, leverage that power, preach that power to your idols. You, idol, are nothing, and you are not powerful. You are infinitely small, and my Jesus is infinitely strong. He is my Savior. He is my rock. He is my power. He is the one I will hope in. That is our strength and power to fight sin and to fight idols. We start with Jesus We don't stare at pornography and say, no, bad. We say, you're nothing. You have no power. You're a created thing. While you look amusing, you're not infinitely beautiful like Jesus. He is my hope. And then when we begin to dwell in, root ourselves in, grow in Jesus and who He is and all that He is for us, we begin to uproot and displace by identifying and naming the idols that we worship, being ruthlessly honest with ourselves. We have to examine our hearts and look at all the little trinkets that we look away from Jesus to. We have to look at the things that we, we cling to and hope in that we think will give us meaning and purpose and value. Real change begins when we identify those idols, when we name them, when we identify and name them. This means a number of things. We, we, we have to, you can't uproot what you can't identify and what you don't name. You, you have to uproot this. We use the habits of grace. We use the Word to do this. We use prayer. We use community. We lean on one another. Do you see any blind spots in my life? Do you, we, we, we read the Word. We pray. We ask God to search us, to reveal our hearts to ourselves. And we ask examining questions, testing questions. Questions like these. What holds title to your heart? What gets your greatest allegiance such that you're tempted to ignore and even possibly disobey God? What gets your greatest allegiance? What gets the bulk of your attention? What gets the bulk of your time? What gets the bulk of your money? Where does your mind go most freely and most often? Or maybe we consider our worries and our fears. What do you instinctively cling to in moments of crisis and trouble? What do you grasp? What do you run to to soothe yourself, to give you peace, to give you comfort? What pacifier are you sticking in your mouth to make you feel safe and secure? What makes your heart gasp at the thought of losing it? What do you most instinctively cling to in times of crisis? Or consider your anger and frustration. This is another great test. Consider what makes you so upset, what makes you so angry. What are you really after in that moment? What are you really longing for in that moment? Why? Why are you so upset? Why are you so angry that someone didn't give you the respect you think you deserve? Why does that rile you up to such a degree? What are you worshiping in that moment? So we ask these examining questions, and when Jesus reveals these things. The Spirit reveals these things. The Word reveals these things. Community reveals these things. When these things are put before our eyes, we confess. We're ruthlessly honest. Jesus, God, I worship this thing. I want approval more than I want your well done, good and faithful servant. I think I can control my circumstances and situation. I want comfort and security and safety more than I recognize that you are my comfort, security, and safety we confess i'm seeking to find my joy and hope and security in insert blank i think that marriage will satisfy me i think a relationship will bring me all the joy and happiness and hope in my life i think this person will i think that job will i think that salary will i think that home will i think insert blank i think these things will give me meaning hope and satisfaction And then we do what I just said a second ago. We cut the heart out of the idol. In repentance, we say to the thing, we point to the thing, and we confess and we repent and we acknowledge that has no power, no pleasure, no joy. It's an empty, lifeless nothing that sucks the life out of me. It is worthless. And then that is where we typically end in the process of removing idols or fighting sin. But we have to go one step further. We rejoice. And this is where we turn to Jesus and we turn to the gospel and we confess and we say that will not satisfy but you will. The, the approval of man will not give me meaning, worth and value but you're well done and good, good and faithful servant is all that I need. I want the warm embrace of that but it will leave me cold and longing for more but yours will not. Oh thank you God that you sent Jesus As my Savior, you will satisfy. He will satisfy. That will never give me pleasure. It's momentary and fleeting. But He is not. This is how we begin to displace our idols with greater affection and greater beauty. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. For real change. For real change. Not consistent over and over again repeating the same things that we've done for thousands hundreds of years. No, this is real change. Jesus offers us the the opportunity, the privilege, the joy of real change. This confession here is that we this this command here is that we can't have other gods and we can't worship him however we want. But we can have all of God and we can have him in how he reveals himself. Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your son. Oh, thank you so much for the power, the the unsearchable riches that are in Jesus. Thank you so much for your jealous, zealous, committed, exclusive love for us. even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, even when we are deceived. You're fighting for us. You want us. You want our hearts. You deserve our worship and our hearts. Lord, may today your word strike our rock-hard hearts like fire and like a hammer. (laughs) Holy Spirit, may you use your word in power to convict and to awaken and to bring real change, gospel change, gospel growth in all of our lives. Thank you, Father, for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.